across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with an hour of Cambridge food and drink. I'm Matt Bentman, no Sue Bailey today, but Alan Alder is back from his train journey through France and Spain and here he is now with news of what's on today's programme. Yes, I am, and it was marvellous. Today we look at the many opportunities there are to develop our food knowledge and skills. There are lots of food workshops coming up which we talk about in our news section. And Rosie Sykes tells me about her new book, Every Last Bite, a book that will help you to save time, money and waste, but crucially, which is written to try to give people the knowledge and skills to create their own dishes, and which contains a lot of novel ideas that Rosie has developed in a lifetime of cooking. And if you fancy making your own honey, wax, even mead, then I've been talking with a local beekeeper who is keen to train new bees to the hobby. And if you want to take up foraging, Sue has advice from Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, on what's good to pick at the moment. I also went to see Jay Scrimshaw at Finboys to find out what they're up to and discovered that they have a workshop coming up and a new venture in which you can book Jay to go to your house to cook a meal for you and your guests. And I've also been finding out about the impending reopening of the Radigand pub in King Street from Ivan Seth and how he feels now about the three-and-a-bit-year rebuild that's almost finished. We've got our regular features too, free food in and around Cambridge, food and drink news, updates from social media and at the end of the programme a selection of job vacancies. Okay so we begin with bees and Spencer Drake is a local instructor who can help you through every aspect of beekeeping. I met up with him this week and we talked for hours about it. His enthusiasm is sure to get you buzzing. There's nothing better than standing over a, a hive when the honey is flowing, having that waft up to you, it gets into you, it gets into your blood some, in some ways. I've got here some wax in my very pocket because <laughs> as beekeepers are, they typically carry this sort of stuff around. If you want to give it a smell, it's waxy, sort of beeswax smell. Beekeeping on a day-to-day -day basis, you could think of it as a smelling experience, a tasting experience. You're always working with the wax, the wood smoke, from your smoker and all of that combines over time to create the most delightful sense that you're always working with in the summer. My bee suit smells of it after years of working, even out of season. Uh, I, I put it on as I have today and that smell brings me back and that all comes through in the final reward, the actual honey itself is the amalgamation of all of that work you've done, all of the work of the bees, all of you working together put into a fantastically tasting form. Uh, 
for anyone considering beginning beekeeping. Wintertime is still a very active season. The beekeeper themselves, they have a lot of preparation to do. Nailing together frames, nailing together hives. Learn the theory. In terms of time requirements, you'll need about one hour per week per hive. Uh -huh. Generally, it's recommended that a new beekeeper actually starts out with two hives because you learn a lot more. If you have two hives, you can compare them against each other to see their progress, to see their growth. Mm -hmm. And if one dies out, you have an opportunity to reproduce it without buying a whole new queen and uh, nook, as it's known. So that's something we talk about in the first meeting is how much are you willing to uh, invest? But it's really a pretty minimal time requirement. The only time where it goes over an hour with inspections usually is either if there has been a swarm, which is hopefully something you can solve quite quickly, or if you're doing the honey harvest. And that's an all-day affair, but it's fun. You sort of roll up your sleeves and you're, you're spinning around the frames themselves that you've extracted and uncapped from the hive. You're spinning them at high speeds in a centrifuge which you yourself are turning, and with just the honey flying out onto the walls and the smell of it flowing throughout your entire room. It's a great experience, it's tiring, but it happens a, a couple of times a season and it's a, a great celebration. So what exactly comprises a hive, for the bee curious? There's not necessarily a, a standard hive. Each hive will differ in terms of the population, the strength of the hive, how long it's been around, Imagine there's 40,000 bees per hive. Each hive in an average season will produce 25 pounds of honey. It's a big honey crop. You've got one queen, about 90% of the honeybees you see are female worker bees. The last 10% are drones, the male bees, who don't do the work of the hive. And it's just a fascinating closed loop of a system. They're so self-sufficient in plenty of ways, although we help them along as beekeepers, of course. And that's through every little bee. You know, every one of those, say, 40,000 are vital for the ongoing maintenance of the hive, the guarding of it, the cleaning of cells, the nursing of larvae, the uh, gathering of honey. As a beekeeping mentor, I go to other people's back gardens. I help mentor them in the first few years, hmm. oftentimes. So what that means is us meeting up, discussing why they want to pursue it. Basic theory about how bees work, the requirements as far as housing them in a garden. Then we launch into, here's what you'll need. Here's how I will help. Here's what the first few weeks of beekeeping will look like. Here's the package you'll get and how you'll install them within your hive. And it goes from there. Really, the, the goal is to fast-track the learning, as well as to ensure that the hives in question uh, have a, a good first couple of years, that they are not the subjects of swarms, that they do not go queenless, that they don't die out of starvation, pesticide, all of these threats mm. to honeybees. We went to visit a hive. You're not going to hear any buzzing noises because, well, it's winter, the off-season, and all the bees are inside watching streaming services. So in February, if it's particularly warm, you might see some foragers going out, gathering the first bits of nectar and pollen for the upcoming season. But really, the hive is still in a, a very minimized state. They're not particularly active. They are just trying to keep warm to when everything starts to bloom in the, the early spring months. So much of beekeeping is dependent on fine observation and decisive action. You see something, 
even small behavioral differences within the hive. You have to interpret what that means through any reading, theory, practice work you've done, and then take the adequate action. That's what I want to help with, really, because there is sometimes a disconnect between knowing the theory and putting it into practice, where hopefully you should be able to see a queen cells being laid and then the general signs of a swarm, which is when a beehive tries to reproduce itself. It splits itself in half, essentially. And you should be able to do a, an artificial split, move them to a new box or else eliminate the, the queen cells or take adequate action essentially to extend the period before the swarm or nip it in the bud in the first place. Because if you don't, usually within a week, they will fly off up into a nearby tree. Yeah. Big ball of, of honeybees, thousands and thousands of them with a queen usually right at the center, right in the middle. You're just about to take a photo there. I'm not, but I'm going to show you me up in a tree, in that tree. So here I am, last May. <laughs> Swarm extraction is oftentimes quite complicated. If you let them fly up into a nearby tree, you have to come up with some creative solutions on the fly. Because yeah. they'll just go away and you'll never find them if they find a place that they think would be a good home. So when you found them in this tree, how long did you have to act? A minimum of like 12 hours. Get them down and get them back in. Yes, yeah. yes, or into a, a new hive. If you don't spot them, if you can't find them, then they're gone. Mm. Sometimes they'll be right next to you and you can't see them though because they, they you know, hide in the foliage, that sort of thing. That's especially a concern within urban environments because most of the nooks and crannies they're looking for are human-made, human-inhabited. That's where you get all of these uh, garbage bin honeybees, uh, honeybees within the walls, within the roof, within the chimney. But... Is beekeeping bad? You're farming them, you're taking their end product, and they clearly get angry about it. If it's done incorrectly, yes, I agree absolutely. It's incredibly important that the bees come first, because I think there is a great symbiotic relationship to be had with bees. If you're able to take care of them, if you're able to understand what they're thinking, then you're able to put their needs first before your needs for a, a honey crop for so many jars per year for so much profit mm. you can prioritize them you understand what strains are put on the hive what local conditions are negative for bees how to work with them properly to keep them relaxed to keep them happy and it's it's easy to see when a hive is doing well when they are happy to some degree, although of course they have very different emotional registers yeah. than we do. That's the core of things. It's not about the honey so much as the well-being of the bees themselves. Globalized beekeeping has brought in so many parasites, so many diseases that ravage wild bees year on year on year. And that's why the wild bee species, the non-honey bee species of the UK are struggling as well as you know, increased industrial farming, for instance, the um, cutting back of wildlands. But let's get back to that final reward, the honey itself. Most of the, the honeys I produce are wildflower honeys. So you may see in supermarkets or specialty stores that there is a, a wide variety of honeys available, say lavender honey, poppy honey, that sort of thing. Really, that's all dependent on the local plantings. So to get a specialty honey, a singular note of, say, lavender, mm. you have to plant that all around the hive. 
it has to be quite a monoculture in some ways, at least as far as flowering plants go. So that's extremely hard to control. Now, me as a, a beekeeper for six years, um, I'm doing it in back gardens, I'm doing it on rooftops. That means very little control. But that still creates a wondrous variety of honeys over the seasons. And it's all dependent on what's blooming. You know, what have the, the gardeners planted in, in the college gardens? It's, it's beautiful in that way. There's a, quite a lot of honey sommelier tastings going on. There's a lot of skill to that in being able to pick out particular flowers. And that goes into mead too, of course. It all comes through. So what you want is a, a single apiary honey, really, from single source, from a single crop that will give you not only the, the floral notes of that particular time when it was harvested, when it was collected by the bees, but also the antibiotic elements to it. Mm. There is, um, there's a lot to be said towards the benefits from consuming pollen in small quantities for hay fever. And you get that from proper local honeys that have the flowers that are putting out all of the pollen that you are inhaling day to day in, in the springtime, in the summer. These first few months are some of the most important as a beekeeper and for the hive itself. This is the point where there has to be sort of a population explosion from that of the, the minimal practicalities of wintertime. Mm. A flip is switched in the queen bee, if you like, and, and she starts laying early in the season here uh, on a minimal scale to keep them all warm, all of the larvae, because they have to be kept warm at that brood stage. Mm. Can just barely see the beekeeping season on the horizon. It's mm. dawning out there. And also on your shoe as well. One seems to have fallen asleep on your shoe. Oh, yes. Yes, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> and they're delightful, really. They're so friendly. Indeed they are. And that was Spencer Drake. And if his words have inspired you to try your hand at beekeeping, then you should contact him via email at spencerldrake at hotmail.com. And now details of free food available in and around Cambridge. And the information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. That's right, and looking at Olio for Cambridge today shows us that Francis, opposite Homerton College on Hills Road, has two gourmet piglets pantry pies to give away. One is chicken, the other is ham and leek. And regular Olio user Nikki in Arbury, she's got a tin of tomato and basil soup, a tin of sweet and sour chicken, a sealed carton of long-life semi-skimmed milk, and a four-pack of John West tuna chunks available. She's got several other small items as well, but other than that, it uh, really is slim pickings once again on Olio today. No, is it? Oh, mm. that's a shame. OK, on to our first news roundup now. And this time of year is very much the time for workshops and classes, so that's where we'll begin. Alessandro from Levante is running a pasta-making workshop at Meadows in Mill Road on the 18th of February. You'll make pastas with and without eggs and some favourite pasta shapes too. The cost is £90 and there are only eight places available. Steve Thompson has some foraging dates coming up. 
We're going to be starting up some foraging tours soon. So by the time this goes out, we should have released the dates on our social media for certainly the end of February and then a lot in March and April. Most of them, I think, will run around the Noonham sort of area. So around the uh, woods and fields all around there. So we quite often start off at the Panton Arms and have a little walk from there for a couple of hours. So it's, it's kind of showing everyone that within sort of 20 minutes walk of central Cambridge, how many different plants, mushrooms, fruits, nuts, everything like that you can find. Alex from Bagel Box has announced new dates for his bagel-making classes. They are on the 25th of February, the 31st of March, April 21st, May 26th and June 30th. And these are all taking place at Market House in the Market Square. There's morning and evening sessions available. A morning session costs you £90 per person and £100 in the evening. You can book a session for a party or a work function too. So contact Alex via his Bagel Box website. Cambridge Cookery School has a chocolate-making class with Rachel Bakes on the 27th of February at 6.30 and there are a few tickets available. Other classes at Cambridge Cookery include Pasta Perfection on the 17th of February, Knife Skills on the 28th of February, Perfect Pastry on the 7th of March, Indian Curry's Masterclass on the 14th of March. And there's lots of workshops coming up at the White Cottage Bakery in Kingston, a sourdough on the 8th of March, Hot Cross Buns on the 27th of March, an introduction to artisan bread making on the 21st, and of course, there's the twice-yearly baking retreat in Tuscany. The first of those is from the 4th till the 10th of April, and all details can be found on the White Cottage Bakery website. And if making your own sausages is your thing, or if you'd like it to be, then sausage-making workshops are on the way at Frank's Farm in Ellsworth. All stages of their production will be covered. You'll be making the sausages from scratch, so boning, mincing, spicing, stuffing and tying. And you get to take one kilogram of your own sausages home too. The workshops are on the 3rd of March from 3 till 6, the 16th of March from 6 till 9, the 14th of April from 3 till 6 and the 20th of April from 6 till 9. To book, phone Remy on 07908 420 Liz Young of The Modern Table has some classes coming up. On the 20th of March, from 6 till 9pm, is fresh, wholesome salads and using spring vegetables. You'll be preparing multiple dishes at a professional kitchen just off Coldham's Lane. And the cost for that is £90, that's for a three-hour session. Details are on the Modern Table website. And Corinne Paye of Gourmandies has a class on the 21st of April, Curries of Reunion Island, which is where Corinne is from, and also from Garden to Table on the 13th of July. Both classes are £130. Steve Thompson's first foraging meal at Amphora is booking now. We have an event on the 3rd of March with Amphora, so with the lovely Chong over there. So we'll be doing our five-course tasting menus with ten wines to pair. If you want tickets to that, that's all on the Amphora website. And Flourish has produced a 56-page magazine. If you're interested in finding out about regenerative farming, ethical egg production and seed production with a difference, then this is the magazine for you. Copies are available from the Flourish shop or by post at flourishfarmshop.co.uk. And we'll have another news break shortly. But now, the good news that Rosie Sykes' new book is out this month, and an important book too, a book for our times, and one from which we can learn a lot. Rosie came into the Cambridge 105 Radio studios earlier in the week to talk to me about it. Rosie, you have a new book out called Every Last Bite, and it's a book with a very clear purpose. 
That's right, Alan. It comes out on the 22nd of February. My idea for the book was mainly about saving waste, saving time and keeping a small budget where you can. That was how it all started. But my secondary purpose and the the thing that I'm always really keen to do was to try and give people confidence in the kitchen and, and to understand ingredients and respect ingredients and use them wholly. The every last bite sort of refers to the fact that hopefully you won't have lots of bits and bobs left over because even if you don't use them in a recipe per se, I give ideas of how else to use them. Right, could you give me some examples of, of recipes that bring out the purpose of Sure. So there's one whole chapter which is called Blueprints for Leftovers. So every single recipe has a section which gives you alternatives to make it with, which I think follows the second, first and second purpose. But the idea is that once you look at all these different ideas, you can have your own ideas. So that, to me, is a really core thing to help people cook well because they might not like potatoes, for example, sweet potatoes, or they might not like coriander. I mean, that's a lot of people don't. So I really want to encourage people to think the way they cook into my book. For example, in that chapter, there's uh, some baked flat mushrooms, which the original recipe, my first recipe, is with either leftover rice or cooked rice you can buy in a pouch, so it's very quick, frozen spinach and pine nuts and some cheese. Really simple, lovely big flat mushrooms. Just bake it in the oven. But then I suggest all sorts of different things. Like, for example, if you had some leftover shredded chicken, you could make a little sort of white sauce or just even some cream cheese, make a little mixture and put that on top of the mushrooms. You finish it with breadcrumbs. Um, So super simple. There's another recipe in there for a, a really great curry which you can do with all sorts of different things in other chapters i use very unexpected ingredients so for example there's a sort of thai and coconut curry which has some glutinous rice in the actual curry and what i suggest you do is you cook the rice and you save the water then you use the glutinous water to make pancakes just with flour so you're using a a thing you would normally throw away Mm to make an accompaniment to this curry. So that's quite a good one. Another really fun one is a couscous dish where you whiz up frozen peas and spinach. You get this amazing bright green liquor with boiling water. So super quick, get them out of the freezer, pour on boiling water, let them defrost a bit, whiz them up in a blender, pour that onto the couscous, and then you get this amazing bright green couscous which is um, really fun to look at and super delicious. And I suggest serving that with tinned mackerel, which is a really lovely ingredient that's a bit overlooked, I would say. I use a lot of pulses in the book because, again, pulses have this brilliant water around them that you can use, either just use it as part of the ingredient or you can save it up and you can do all sorts of things with it. So that water is really brilliant for making batters If you don't want to use an egg, you just whisk it up and you can coat any manner of things with it. So it's about seeing the things that you don't necessarily see. Or, for example, a jar of capers has a vinegary liquid in it, which is great for putting a tiny bit of in a vinaigrette 
or I often suggest deglazing when you're cooking meat, when you're making a stew, to add just a little piquancy, you want some vinegar. So that would be a perfect place for some vinegar from a caper jar or a cornichon jar or any kind of pickle jar. Another great one is peppers in oil or tomatoes in oil. Keep that oil. That's brilliant for all sorts of things, for making like scones or bread or frying things you get all these different flavors from things that uh, a lot of people would just discard because they don't know what to do with them so yeah. this this knowledge you have of how to use these things that people throw away has that come about over a sort of lifetime's work or yeah it has have it's you done just... a study of it or what? no i just have this such strong sense of not wanting anything to go to waste mm. so always i've always thought oh there must be something you can do with that Yes, I've sort of collected up a little lexicon of my own of, mm. of how to do that, really. So this so. book is an absolute treasure trove, really. There's lots li- and lots of different ideas in it. I'd like to think it is. And it, on every recipe, there's a tip. So it might be, for example, if you're doing this recipe and it's got carrots in and you've bought a bag of carrots because it's more economical to do so, then why not try pickling the carrots? And again, you can reuse a pickling liquor to do that or... If you're making this recipe, you'll probably only need half a cabbage, so why not do this with the other half? So a lot of it is about building up someone's confidence around little bits which they might think are scraps, and it doesn't all have to go... I mean, I love bubble and squeak, and I have a recipe for bubble and squeak in the book, which, by the way, in the book I say, if you don't have leftover potatoes, you might have some leftover pulses... And they make a brilliant bubble and squeak as well. (laughs) Um, And I suggest in the book doing a slightly spiced one. And so that with some leftover butter beans or something, delicious. Mm. It's just about building up an idea of what you like, what you often have left over and what you can do with it without it becoming, you know, just throw it all into a, well, either the bin or something that doesn't necessarily come together yes, that well. Yeah, what a brilliant idea. And it's uh, it, it seems to have been well received by the press at any rate because there was a big splash in The Observer about it, wasn't there? Yes, yes, I was very lucky to get that. But I've got a few th- more things like that coming up over the next few weeks. Mm. And that's a nice way to share a few of the recipes for people to kind of see what, what's in there without giving too much away because mm. obviously we're hoping that people will want to go out and buy the book as well. The other thing that I'm really happy about with the book is that I've kind of worked in a way that um, starts with very quick little easy recipes for lunch or if you come in the door and you're hungry type thing, things on toast, simple quick things. And then I work that up into much longer term things that need to go in the oven for a while. That chapter's called Goings On in the Oven, for example. There's a chapter called In It for the Long Haul. So it's very clear that that's a chapter of things that might take longer. But one of my philosophies about that is you do a bit of work at the beginning, you throw it in, and then you can go off and do your own thing while it's doing its own thing. Mm. And I think, well... It's the slow cooker idea, isn't it? And the other thing um, I write about in the introduction is trying to use up all the space in your oven. So I I have this thing which I call an oven tray mirepoix, which is cooking onions, carrots, leeks. If If it's a very hot oven, I would put some oil on, put some seasoning on, clean them up, and then maybe put some foil on and leave them. 
until everything's meltingly soft. And then you've got the base for a soup, base for a stew. You know, it's something you can use for many, many things. And it means you don't have stuff going limp in the fridge. You can use everything up. And this will keep really well for, you know, a week in a Tupperware. And just use spoonfuls to brighten up a soup, a risotto, a pasta, tomato sauce, whatever it is. It's just really, really handy. And you're saving, obviously, on energy costs as well. Exactly. Because you have the oven on exactly. anyway. Because yeah. that is something that people feel quite anxious about now, putting sure. their ovens on. Mm. And the other thing I think is always a great idea is if you've got the oven on, try and do some baking as well. So in, in the sweet chapter, I've got a few things that you can bake in the oven. So like so that works really well. And the other thing I think is quite a good idea, which I suggest in a lot of my recipes, is using the oven while it's heating up and the oven while it's cooling down. So my favourite with heating up the oven is to toast nuts and seeds that are going into a recipe or, or even if you just want toasted nuts and seeds to go in your porridge in the morning. Do that while the oven's warming up because starting them off cold is fine and they gently toast through and you're hopefully less likely to burn them which is one of my fortes because you just put your timer on and you know you're watching for the oven to get to temperature anyway great yeah. okay and tell, tell us again what the book is called rosie and when it's out the book is called every last bite and it is out on the 22nd of february brilliant well thank you very much rosie and i hope it does well thank you alan <laughs> thanks very much yeah, a book full of great ideas. And if you want a, a quick sample of some of the recipes, have a look at the Guardian website where the recipes section has the Observer's feature on Rosie's book. OK, we're going to take a quick two-minute break for a glass of water and a run around the studio. We'll see you in two when we will be hearing about developments at Finboys, what to forage this month and the rebuilding of the Radigan pub. Cambridge 105 Radio. Want to do your everyday shopping and raise funds for Cambridge 105 Radio? With easy fundraising, it's easy. Easy fundraising partners will donate part of what you spend to Cambridge 105 Radio. And it won't cost you any extra. Choose from great brands like Amazon, John Lewis, Etsy, H&M and Screwfix. Sign up now at cambridge105.co.uk slash easyfundraising. Thank you. For a great range of electrical goods, visit urboturbo25.com. We're a top-rated online retailer based in St. Neitz. That's trusted by thousands of UK customers for the past 10 years. We stock a wide selection of kitchen appliances, vacuum cleaners, power tools, personal care items, phone accessories, and much, much more. We offer free shipping, and most of our items are available for next-day delivery. Check out our 100% feedback rating on Amazon and eBay. Visit us today at urboturbo25.com. That's urboturbo25.com. If you work in the automotive industry and are looking for a change of direction in 2024, we've a great opportunity. We're Meridian Business Support, one of the UK's leading recruitment companies. Right now, we're recruiting for a large household name here in Cambridge. We're looking for the right candidates for roles including MOT testers and vehicle technicians. You'll be working with the latest diagnostic technology and be able to broaden your expertise, creating happy customers along the way. To apply, text Auto Center to... 8802. Sign on term supply. For more information about Meridian and the roles we have in your area, visit meridianbs.co.uk. Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Welcome back to Flavor, and time for a little bit more news. The stove in Bourne has announced the return of its Friday night dinners. And here are a couple of reminders of other regular events. North Stowe's Sunday Market happens every week from 10 till 2, and Cambridge Sustainable Foods Pay As You Feel Cafe is open every Wednesday, 12.30 till 2, at St Philip's Church, 185 Mill Road. Heading over to Congratulations Corner now, where we meet Stir Bakery. They've just been voted 10th best bakery in Britain by British Baker. The winner was Lovingly Artisan near Kendall, and Stir's Baker, Sandor Bagameri, was in the final three for the Best Baker Award. That's a fantastic achievement. It certainly is. Mm. Tawa Bites currently has 50% off Tawa Veg, Crispy Chicken and Jalfrezi Lamb Burgers, and the offer is up to the 18th of February. And Scott's All Day on Mill Road has a free bottle of Brooklyn Pilsner for you and your guests if you book for dinner on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday during February, except for February the 14th, that is. And speaking of the 14th, I popped into Dolce's Pasticcini and Gelato on Rose Crescent yesterday and they had some new things on the menu. Espresso. Ciao, Matt. Ciao. Well, this looks lovely. So we have an espresso. This is a very Sicilian coffee. I always recommend to don't have a sugar inside a good espresso. <laughs> That's gonna give you a nice kick in the morning. So yes, this is a Micheladoro coffee. It's not too bitter, so it's very nice and easy to drink. Yeah. The blend is a good amount of Arabica and Robusta. What's your favorite pasticcino, if I can ask? Tell to Matt, what's your favorite it pasticcino? It is the choc coconut. Choco coconut. Choco coconut. Which actually is one of the newest we introduced, right? She come every every week, twice or three times. <laughs> Number one fan. Yes. And this is one of the reasons why we're here today, because when I originally came to see you, you were just doing your pasticcini. Correct. But of course today, there's much more things on offer, such as the coffee. Everybody from day one asks, where is the coffee? Where is the Italian coffee? Vogliamo il caffè! Now we do celebration cake. We are very close to San Valentine. I want you to try also. The cake Maurizio, my brother-in-law and the chef of Dulcis, he prepared for us. is a very nice mix between white chocolate and vanilla mousse, chocolate cremoso, cocoa sponge. And then people can choose to have a, a cover with strawberry glaze or cocoa butter. Inside there is also wild berries, so it's quite a nice contrast. I love it. Oh, well, yeah, the combination is beautiful. Yeah. With the cherry, oh, that's lovely. That's so lovely, and light as well. Lovely, light, sweet, flavorsome. The coffee and the cake together, <laughs> beautiful. You are always welcome here, Matt. Thank you, grazie, and thank you to your radio, 105. Grazie. <laughs> <laughs> and if you fancy that Valentine's cake, and why wouldn't you, you can order it online at dulcis, D-U-L-C-I-S, hyphen, cambridge.co.uk. And remaining in Italy, black truffles from Tuscany are now available from Limoncello in Mill Road. And back to Cambridge, Cam Organic, which many of us know as Kofco, has a free box offer running up to the 15th of February for new customers. So you need to use the code VEGBOX2024, all one word, on your order. That's an offer for returning customers too. It's all on the Cambridge Organic website. Uh, bookings at Vanderlyle in March have opened. And finally, for now, Bushel Box Farm in Willingham is selling its own extremely fruity blueberry and lime jam from its farm shop. 
Well, we've had two news updates so far in the programme, but Finboy's news hasn't featured. There's so much of it that it deserves its own section. So here is Alan talking with Finboy Jay Scrimshaw on what's happening at number two Mill Road. Jay, you've got uh, lots of new developments at uh, Finboy's, and one that, well, a lot of them caught my eye actually, but the one that really stood out was you going into people's houses for private dining, for cooking for them at, at their house. Yeah, so um, this all came about a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, sort of 69 people on our waiting list on a Saturday evening. So, and there's always at least 20 people. We're a small restaurant, so we figured we could just, you know, tables of six and above, you know, I could go out there and, and cook what we're going to be cooking here on that weekend. You know? So it would be a, your sort of bit multi-course tasting? Yeah, um, yeah, six, seven courses, uh, maybe a few extra in there. Yeah, me coming out, serving a wine, you know, it's... Well, I know people do that, and I wonder what it's like, you know, because you're going into an unfamiliar kitchen, you don't know what equipment they've got, you don't know whether the knives are blunt, you know. Uh, we'll, bring it, we'll bring everything with us. So we'll bring crockery, cutlery, glassware, all my chefy knives and stuff like that, cooking equipment, and then we'll leave it all, you know, as clean as it was when we, you know, we'll take all the dirty stuff away. Yeah. So right. wouldn't know we've been there. And is there a minimum number of people? Six. Okay, and when are you starting that? Whenever people want. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. say from March, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, um, from first weekend of March, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the price? Um, I believe it's £150 per, per person. person. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. And something else that you're doing which caught my eye as well was, was takeaway meals. So we've always done, we've always tried to do the boxes. You know, there might be in a box like three courses or whatever, but we thought we'd simplify it. There's, we have the same people ordering these boxes all the time. So we thought we'd simplify it and just have a dish. So, I mean, at the moment we've got um, sort of uh, prawns with a Thai curry sauce that Richard makes. We've got it on the menu. So we can easily take that dish, bag it up, box it up, and you take it away. So it's very, it's simple cooking. There's, you don't you don't need a great deal of skill to uh, <laughs> right. to so you to cook make it at home. It's a bit so like you, the old lockdown thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you cook it at home. It's all the so the main ingredients, the, like the sauces and like that. That will all, all be made, and then all you've got to do is cook the fish. Has that started? Uh, that like started has started from now. Now we've launched. To, yeah, on the right, newsletter. Okay. And you've also got a workshop coming up: uh, pasta and shellfish. This is one of our ideas we had at the very beginning. You know, um, Sundays, we're not open. Um, we won't be open. You know, it's a bit of fun, hopefully, you know, learning about, you know, how to prep fish or whatever. So the first one we're gonna do anyway, pasta, shellfish. So uh, where to buy your shellfish from, how to prep it, what to look for, when to buy it, like in seasons, and then simple recipes that you can easily do at home that you know take no time at all and then i'll show you how to do it and then you'll arrive <clears throat> 10 o'clock it'll be coffee and pastries then we'll have a quick chat run through we'll go through make different shapes of pastas and all that sort of stuff oh you'll be making pastas. yeah, we'll be, yeah right, we'll be making right. all different pastas yeah and then uh, about one o'clock we'll sit down and have lunch glass of wine eat not particularly what we've cooked but there'll be some sort of dish, pasta yeah, dish. Yeah, yeah. You know, a few, a few different types of pasta, salad, bread, you know, just a bit of a light lunch. Fantastic, right, okay. And also, you're, you've got weekend oysters and champagne as well. 
Yep, so we've got uh, the window table. So we, we, we tend not to sell that for the tasting menu So uh, at the weekend. So we're just going to offer it out for people who want to just, you know, drop in for 20 minutes, half an hour for some oysters and a glass of champagne and off they go, whether that's right, coming so into, to going into, <laughs> heading into town or... So people who get the urge for an oyster well, and a little champagne. There eh? are people out there. <laughs> well, well, I think I could well, very well be one of them as well. And also coming up, um, a wine night. What's that? What's, yep. I, mean, I know you have wine nights in, so we have from wine. time to time. This yep. is uh, with Liberty's wine, I think. Yep, so we have a wine event the first Wednesday of every month. Um, and in March, uh, on the 6th of March, Wednesday, we're doing a uh, collaboration with Liberty Wines. Peter Rose going to come and do it, and it's Veneto, uh, so Italian, Italian wines, which they're pretty much like the, the best in the country, the, you know, for for their Italian wines. And then, and Richard has um, paired up a menu to to match the wines. Right. So um, yeah, uh, all of it's available on the website. And that's seventy-five pounds. And that's seventy-five pounds a head. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds that sounds very reasonable. Yeah, five courses, wines, champagne on arrival. So, yeah, brilliant. Right. Thanks very much, Joe. And that is the Finn Boys news for now, except that they have temporarily removed oysters from their menu. There's a big thing on uh, Instagram about it. Oh, and congratulations for them getting their five-star food hygiene rating as well this week. And they're also planning to restart their weekend stints at the Gog Farm Shop in March. There can't be many restaurants in the country that do so much. <laughs> on now to Steve Thompson. And you might not think that this is the time for foraging, but you'd be wrong. Are there really a lot of things beginning to come out now? Ah, oh, yes, we're absolutely. So spring is really just starting. So it's, it's wonderful at the moment. If you have a look outside, you'll see the snowdrops going, the daffs going. We've got crocuses popping up. The leaves, all the tulips are coming through. And these are all the kind of plants that make me think of spring originally. But foraging-wise, we've got wild garlic that's starting to shoot up now in the more open places. If you pick it from like a bit more of a closed woodland, like there are a couple of patches around here, then it's not coming up in any of my patches at the moment. But in the more open kind of roadside ones, we're starting to get shoots. We've got crow's garlic coming through, so some other alliums. And then if you just look in the lawns and everything like that, we've got ground ivy, dandelions everywhere, chickweed, jack by the hedges through at the moment. We've got stinking bob. So, or Herb Robert. What is Stinking Bob? Stinking Bob's just a fun name for Herb Robert or Geranium Robertium. It's one of those plants, uh, much like coriander. Some people love it, some people hate it. So some people get, with Herb Robert, Stinking Bob, some people do get the coriander smell and taste with it. And some people get kind of burnt plastic, that kind of acridy smell. Really? Fortunately, I like coriander, but I didn't realise that people could have such a nasty, well, not reaction, but sort of dislike of it, shall we say. Yeah, I think there's something genetic in it. I can't remember the exact science behind it all, but, yeah, coriander is one of those ones. And same with Herb Robert. I mean, at the moment, I know it's coming through nicely because it's overtaking my patio at home. Oh, fair enough. What does Herb Robert look like? Could you describe it? Yeah, so it's kind of... It's, it's a hairy, small plant. It kind of looks like it should be in the carrot family, so almost like a cow parsley, but it isn't. Uh, it's a part of the geranium family, as per its binomial name. Uh, it has five little pink petals with two lines through them all almost fern-like leaves to it and does it have quite long stalks on it we're not yeah yeah, yeah, it stalks. Can do, yeah it can bush right out and kind of grow but you get it a lot through it likes really like dry conditions really so 
where other plants don't like to grow, so it cracks in the pavement, it like dry edges of paths and things like that. But it's a really good plant to pick, and it's just starting to come through now again. But it's one that kind of comes through throughout the year, so we normally get four or five different picks of it throughout the year, which is quite nice. And so what does it taste like? Because I, I certainly have it in the garden. So for me, I get coriander. I do get... I understand the burnt plastic side of it as well. I do get that. I kind of get it in more of like a bittery kind of nasal notes to it. So I kind of get coriander with kind of a bitter undertones to it. So it works really well with uh, bacon jam. So bacon jam with Herb Robert, it will be on our Facebook or our Instagram page if you scroll far enough back on Instagram. And uh, we just use it in the same way you'd use coriander, really. It's just really nice to finish off, like, nice curries because we quite often have a curry spice mix made out of hedgerow spices that we do at the end of summer. So to finish that off with a nice bit of Herb Robert at the end is a really nice way to make a curry. Do you use the leaves or do you dehydrate it? What do you do to it? Yes, yeah, so we just use the leaves. So I tend to just use them fresh and chopped. It's a plant that works bruised as well. So we quite often chop it up and then whack it in the pestle and mortar just to really batter it. It's the same with Jack by the Hedge. That's another plant that works really well being bruised. So chop them up, whack them in the pestle and mortar and give them a good bashing and that really releases all those oils and flavours in them. And anything else sort of more unusual that you've seen recently? Well, something I have noticed is a little bit early is the apples trees are starting to blossom near me at the moment. So that's quite a nice early one. They make some really nice cordials if you use those. Crow's garlic we've mentioned, which is a lovely one that comes out early in spring that is often forgotten about and looks almost like wild chives. Oh, yes, and it's the one that has those little white flowers, almost like wild garlic and almost like a snowdrop. It's a cross between oh, the two. No, that or is that is, something different? It's a fewer-flowered leek or three-cornered leek that you're thinking of, and that is just starting to come out. The fewer-flowered leeks we have on our foraging walks, so if you want to learn more about that, coming on one of our walks is great. That's Allium paradoxum. So we're talking about crow's garlic, which is Allium vineale. Yeah, this looks basically like wild chives. The only thing you could confuse it for would be chives, but you're unlikely to find them in this abundance in the wild. Or more like reed-like grasses. And a very easy way to tell is just to give it a crush in your fingers and have a sniff. It will smell very, very strongly of garlic. Ah. And has Rowan been... Because Rowan's with us at the moment and he's been playing with the lovely wooden ark on the floor. Now, does Rowan come out on your foraging tours? He does on lots of them, so he may well be out on some of them. He normally makes it about as far as the park at Noonham and then runs off, goes and does the park with somebody who's helping and then comes back to us for the final bit at the end. Oh, that's lovely. But of course, as you have said in the past, you're teaching him to be a young forager. Yeah, he's getting really good with a lot of them. The plants is absolutely brilliant. We were walking down the street the other day and he just turned around to me and went, Daddy, Mahonia. Which is really Excellent. <laughs> which was one I was just wasn't expecting because we've been picking the Oregon grapes at the end of last year and it just wasn't what I was expecting or not the end of last year the beginning of summer really now blimey but yeah he just comes out with them all I forget what kind of sponges they are and he just picks it all up so he's getting really good with it because he's only four isn't he so he's but he's brilliant he is yeah he's been a wood, woodland baby since he was born though he loves it he loves the inside as much but <laughs> he loves getting out and getting with the plants and we've had foraging tours before where he's come up to us and when we've been on tour and say daddy daddy i found this and it's a plant we weren't even going to talk about so <laughs> oh wow that is impressive that is lovely so we're now part way through february it hasn't been that cold so does that mean everything is going to be quite early do you think I would have thought our greens are going to be quite abundant this year because we haven't had the really harsh frosts, have we? And it's been quite wet and quite a lot of moisture. So I'd say, looking at things, I think we're probably going to have quite a good year for a lot of the alliums and things like that and a lot of our wild greens, really. And we'll have to see what that does to affect the fruits 
and everything like that when they come through. But, I mean, Apple's coming into blossom now already. be interesting to see what that does because everything's going to frost up soon, isn't it? So, That's always the risk, isn't yeah. it, a late frost? So, yeah, we're due all this potential snow coming in the next few days. So uh, <laughs> That'll be exciting, won't it? <laughs> yeah, we'll see what that does to that. But I would, I would have thought we should have a good time for all your wild garlics and your fewer-flad leeks and everything like that. So mm. get out and get collecting those. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks. And time for some wine news. Uh, new tasting dates at Amphora have been announced. Coming up, there's a tasting of Ukrainian wines, Syrah or Shiraz, Greek wines, Sherry, Bordeaux versus Bordeaux blends, and With Age Comes, which is a comparison of young and old wines. All the tastings cost £38, and the dates can be found on the Amphora website. And tastings at the Wine Rooms in Hills Road on the 15th of February, sparkling wines from around the world. And on the 29th, Pinot Noir from around the world. 14th of March is Rioja and Riera del Duero. Tickets are £30 and the tastings run from 7 till 8.30pm. Ivan Seth is a software engineer by trade, but several years ago he started running beer festival events for camera and then he started a beer distribution business and this year he's about to reopen an old Cambridge pub. Yeah, I visited the new Radigand on King Street this week. It's nearing the final stages of completion. To the average punter, it might look like all you really needed to do was give the place a quick lick of paint and a new bar and tap system, but this is a job that has consumed Ivan for over three years. Well, it's been a massive learning curve, that's for sure. We had to strip the place down, back to brickwork. New floor, big RSJ in. Was everything rotten? Yeah, the building was a couple of unfortunate events away from collapsing in on itself. The ceiling was held up by a post that was set on floorboards. Joists were rotten. So that was kind of the first stumbling block for us. I drank here 15 or so years ago when it was more of a Milton brewery pub. You should drink Nero in here. Nero is a 5% ABV oatmeal stout-style beer. It's dark brown, nearly black, chocolatey, smoky and rummy, with a fantastic fudge flavour in the finish. Brewed by Milton Brewery, and according to their website, Nero is an unfined beer, suitable for vegans. Anyway, back to the new Radigand. I know it's just a nice little pub. It clearly has quite a distinctive period of modern history under this guy called Terry Bunter, Terry Cavana as its landlord. Seems to be quite a character <laughs> who's also got involvement with the hash in Cambridge and things like that. He passed away in 2012, I think. But he's kind of what everyone talks about when they're talking about this pub. And then the period after that seems to have a little bit of a period of decline, I guess, um, until it eventually shut down in 2019. It's deeper history beyond that is kind of murky. Pre-Terry, there's just not much documented. Okay. Uh, I can get loads of interesting stuff from the early 1900s, late 1800s from newspapers. There's been quite interesting historical stuff back there I've collected clippings from, from the National Newspaper Archive. Also, this site that we're standing on was the Garrick Head. There was this kind of big complex of buildings here on this corner, of which this seems to be kind of like the last remnant. The name was changed to the Radigand. Spelt with an H, as in R-H-A-D, Egund. They tried to change the location to Jesus Lane, but I think it just stayed on King Street in the end, as it is now. We've not really... We've not changed the shape of it. All the walls are new, all the plastering's new... The old sit-down loos, 
They're about the only thing in this building that hasn't been massively changed. Everything else has had our hands on it somewhere. Everything from building these benches to welding the stair rails. And, of course, everything, everything has had a new coat of paint. Yeah, we're sort of trying to decide how to lay out the place. We've chosen a pretty open design, hoping it's more of a community and conversational vibe rather than people in little corners. But we'll see what the customers think. That's kind of going to be what changes it, what makes it. So we'll have a whole row of little tables along this long banquette seat at the front under the windows. When I arrived at the Radigand, Ivan had been tweeting that afternoon about installing and testing the beer dispensers. At last, amongst all the paint pots, the tarpaulins and cloths, these pumps were the first proper stamp of the pub's new identity. In my day job as such, which is running a beer wholesale business, we also do a lot of dispense work. Mm. So I do pub installs, cellar installs, things like that. Of American style of installs, uh, they have a system called direct draw. Direct draw. It's one of the three main types of draft beer systems that you can employ. You can find out all about it at a handy website called draftbeerintelligence.com. And as far as I can make out, Direct Draw is a bit like a large soda stream with a built-in cleaning system and refrigerator. So it's just a cold store with the tap sticking out the side of it. Really simple, really efficient. It's really good for beer quality, uh, really good for yield. So it's good for business and product. I did some work for a brewery called Cloudwater pre-pandemic where we developed a ducted system so that the dispense would be above the cold store but everything would still be in cold, four degree air the whole way. So that's what we've done here. Behind the bar, we've got what we call the tap wall. And rather than have 20 taps on the left, what's normally for keg, a Python system, which is a bundle of pipes in a bit of insulation. Very inefficient, very hard to change, very hard to keep clean. And there's lots of problems with it. We have a duct. So you can see a big silver duct coming up from the floor. Mm-hmm. And that literally goes straight down into the cold store. Yeah. And there's a fan at one end and the beer pipes go up the other end and it recirculates the four-degree cold store air. And the pipes literally come from the keg straight below, straight up and into the back of those taps. And the taps are Perlick taps from the US as well. Yeah, designed in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, this beer tap is called the Perlick faucet. The Perlick forward sealing faucet prevents your beer from being exposed to air. Air on beer results in bacteria. As a result, there's no buildup of bacteria in the faucet body like there is with all other faucets. We have a lot of American influence in our beer styling. So there's 20 keg taps there, all running down to the cellar. And there's five taps on the right, which are going to be our cask taps. So cask is probably going to be a range of maybe two or three lines, cider, again, two or three, depending on how the customers want things, basically. So the cask taps will also be on a wall. They won't be a hand pump. Mm -hmm. So it'll be quite different from a visual perspective. You don't have these big hand pumps on the front bar. And of course, the new Radigand will support independent breweries. So looking at the sorts of beers we deal with, it's pretty much everything. (laughs) So we may want to put a bitter on the cask lines. A bitter and a pale ale and a dark beer would be the usual sort of trio. It probably won't always be the same beer. That's the thing, we tend to want to rotate taps, so we probably won't have permanent beers. Or if we do, it'll only be like two or three of the, of the 25 taps we have there. 
So we'll have some nice independent uh, lagers, both potentially from Germany, maybe even Czech Republic. So there's some really good stuff, yeah. as well as British ones. So there's some great uh, lagers being made by small British breweries now, as well as the current modern trend of the New England IPAs, the hazy ones. And then we'll have cider again, supporting the small independents. And we also have wine. So there's just behind the front of the bar, there's five more tap holes coming up and behind the bar. And we're going to have wine in draft format. Pretty much just a house red, a house white, and maybe a rosé or a frizzante sparkling type wine. They're going to be in keg, which is environmentally pretty good because you can stick 30 or 20 litres in one small, quite lightweight container. The downside is that these containers are usually plastic, but we actually have a recycling chain for those plastics as well. It's better than shipping around all these 750ml heavy glass bottles. And finally, the big question... Yeah, um, so everyone always wants to know when we're going to be open and it's always going to be as soon as possible. We have a camera event booked in here late February. I think it's something around the 22nd. Mm. So we want to be open by then. Need to get some beers pouring. And, of course, you can always follow the new Radigan's progress on Twitter as well because you're quite a prolific tweeter. Yeah, I've done a lot. Yeah, so I tweet quite a bit as I think it's the new Rad CB1. But for now, if there's updates about the next layer of painting and then the next layer of painting and then we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thank you, Evan. No worries. And you're listening to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. There's Booker T and the MGs with Green Onions taking us into our jobs section. And we begin with CoFarm. They're looking for a community engagement coordinator. This one has a closing date of the 14th of February, so you will need to be quick. More details can be found on the CoFarm website. That's cofarm.co forward slash work hyphen with hyphen us. Stir in Chesterton Road has vacancies for a barista and a front of house. And next door, the bakery has a vacancy for a delivery driver. To apply, send your CV with covering letter to hr underscore and underscore ops at stirgroup.co.uk. Modigliani in Mill Road needs an assistant in the shop on Fridays with occasional weekend working. Send your CV with a covering letter to Modigliani at themodiglianigroup.org or you can simply drop it off in the shop. Thirsty in Chesterton Road is looking for a new team member who should be available at weekends and evenings for one or two shifts a week. Send your CV to ben at wearethirsty.co.uk. And finally, the Food Museum in Stowmarket has vacancies for a cook stroke shift supervisor to prepare meals and lead the catering team, a retail stroke hospitality assistant to welcome visitors and provide excellent customer service in the shop, and a hospital stroke events assistant who will support events, weddings, corporate hires and caterings on site. You can find out more and apply on the Food Museum website. And that takes us to the end of the programme for today. Don't forget we are here on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated Mondays at uh, 6 and Thursdays at 2. And we're available as a podcast pretty soon too. Coming up, 1 o'clock, the Gadget Guide will be back on the 24th. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>